Welcome to episode 13 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and President-elect of AAEM, speaks with Dr. Andrew Phillips, Fellow at Stanford Hospital and Clinics. In this episode, Dr. Farsi and Dr. Phillips will discuss the PUSH 100% and HOP mnemonics in relation to post-intubation decompensation. Good afternoon from sunny, well, actually rainy, Miami Beach, Florida. I am your host, Dr. David Farsi, and today I have a very important podcast. I have the pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Andrew Phillips. Dr. Andrew Phillips is finishing his Anesthesia Critical Care Fellowship at Stanford University in Stanford, California. Dr. Phillips is also an attending physician in the emergency department at Kaiser Redwood City. Dr. Phillips, thank you very much for taking your time. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you very much for the invitation. So today... We're going to be discussing a very important topic, a topic on post-intubation decompensation. Emergency physician, if we look at the literature, they're very, very good at intubating patients, doing RSI. But when it comes to placing the patient on the vent, we sometimes fail to recognize different disease process. So today we're going to focus on what happened post-intubation. So Dr. Phillips, I'll let you start. Thank you again very much for the opportunity to share this. And absolutely, I think particularly for the community physician, for example, in a small hospital where you're transporting a lot of these critically ill patients out immediately after intubating, if they decompensate, this is really important for safe transport for them. So when somebody decompensates after you intubate them, sure, it could be a progression of their disease process. When that's a PE, you intubate them, they've gone from segmental to saddle, of, of course, but more than likely, if they're decompensating immediately after tubing them, it's because of our intervention, common things being common. And so I kind of want to talk about what happens just physiologically when we tube them, because that's going to help us with a differential for, well, if we change their physiology, then what is it that we are augmenting with this intubation that's then interacting with their disease process? Because that's what it is. Something is going wrong with them. We have now changed the physiology of the tube, and that physiologic change of the tube is just exacerbating their underlying process, which actually helps us differentiate what's causing that decompensation. Let me reemphasize, that's a very, very important point that you just mentioned. We took a patient that was compensating for their disease process, and now we're going to hammer them by paralyzing them, sedating them, and we're going to take away their physiological process that maintain them alive. And you know, all my residents know that I tell them patients are not all equal, and they do not fit the same vent settings. So we have to take this the physiology in consideration. One thing I did want to share before we get too far into the physiology of this was, you know, you don't always know what's going on. You sometimes you you can't in the human moment after a resuscitated decompensating patient don't have time to work through what can be sometimes a complicated differential. And what I wanted to share with folks is a safe go-to mnemonic that each of these steps you can do, regardless of what the etiology is, is a safe maneuver to try to get yourself out of trouble until you have time to kind of work through exactly what happened. And that mnemonic is 
push 100%. So obviously they're decompensating. Yeah, you're going to be turning FiO2 to 100%, so you can remember that for the mnemonic, and it's PPPUSH 100%. So let me briefly at the beginning of this walk through that, and that's going to come up again because I want to remind folks that really if you can't work through the physiology or things are just happening too fast and you're focused on fixing the decompensation, this can be your go-to. So the first P stands for auto-peeping, and that's when the patient is air-trapping. Think asthma. The second... Sorry, before we get to the second P, let me just emphasize that point because I think that's a very, 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 very important point. So you just mentioned the concept of auto-peeping. But the concept of auto-peeping is it's these asthmatic are able to get air in but not air out. So as their inspiration phase gets the air in, the expiration phase is limited. And so as you're giving 500 cc's of volume, they may not get 500 out. And as they're starting with each breath, the retaining volume increase, increase, increase. That's called breath stacking. That caused decreased venous return and cause severe hypotension, pneumotheresis, and if it's not recognized, potentially lead to death. Absolutely. So that's the first P. The next P is plateau pressure. And plateau pressure is when the patient, you put them on the vent and you have them do an inspiratory hold, an inspiratory pause. And it's a measure of pressure, basically, that the alveoli are feeling. It's a static measurement, a static pressure measurement as opposed to a dynamic pressure measurement. So the vent will alarm with peak pressures, and we can talk in a moment about more what the differences are and those alarms are working through that. But for these going through the mnemonic briefly, the plateau pressure, think of it as the pressure that the alveoli are feeling. And you can just ask your RT to measure a plateau pressure when things aren't going well as you work through how to fix things. So we will have checked for auto-peeping, which you asked your RT to do, and we check for plateau pressure. If you want your plateau pressure under 30, if that is greater than 30 centimeters of water, then you're causing barotrauma, and it helps us figure out what's going on. But check for that. It's kind of a hidden alarm, if you will, because the ventilator will not, most ventilators, I've never I've seen one that will go off automatically with a high plateau. So it's a hidden alarm that you have to go intentionally look for. So we have checking for auto-peep and checking for plateau pressure. That's two Ps. Let me re-emphasize the plateau pressure. So the plateau pressure for everyone comes out, the, where does the number 30 comes out? It comes out from a paper that was published in New England Journal of Medicine called the ARDS-NET trial. And basically what they look at, they look at conservative tidal volume versus restrictive tidal volume. And the restrictive tidal volume were four to six milliliters per kg to achieve a plateau pressure of less than 30. So in your ARDS patient, suspected ARDS patient, it's extremely important that you look, you know, especially if your positive inspiratory pressure alarm is ringing, they should kind of have a reflex to do or and ask the respiratory therapist to do a plateau pressure and maintaining that plateau pressure to less than 30 by either decreasing the respiratory rate or decreasing your tidal volume to achieve plateau pressure less than 30. And just as a parenthesis, most ventilators that emergency physicians are using are volume control, meaning you deliver a tidal volume. Right. For some of you out there, you need to understand that your ventilator, even though it's volume control, but it's pressure driven, meaning 
the pressure will release the tidal volume. So this is one of the, if you see the vent, what's called cycling, where you start seeing the vent delivering a bunch of breath, it's not achieving your tidal volume, you need to go to your alarm and check to see what's the pressure, the high pressure alert at, and then change that pressure, because if it's that high pressure alert is set to a low pressure, then your, your ventilator is going to be cycling. And I think that's, uh, you know, I've seen a couple of instances in my career where, you know, residents saying, you know, the vent is broken, we just go into the alarm, we change that settings, and suddenly the pressure is delivered. And then go back to your plateau pressure, check to make sure it's less than 30 by changing respiratory rate, tidal volume to achieve plateau pressure of 30. Third P vent would be paralyzed. And of course, that comes with sedation if you're going to do that. In the critical care literature, there's a fair amount out there and some controversy about whether to paralyze patients and if they're going to have worsened myopathy after getting paralytics and such. But what I would tell my emergency medicine colleagues is if you're in a hole, if they're decompensating, it's not wrong to just take over completely. Sedate them, paralyze them, and manage everything for them because a lot of problems after you intubate somebody can stem from the patient being asynchronous to the vent or change. We're going to go, we can talk a little moment about some of the physiology specifics, but it's not wrong to paralyze. If you're in a hole that's in your pocket, give it a shot. You can paralyze them with rock. You can put them on a Vec drip. It doesn't matter what agents you're using for the purposes of just getting them to a paralytic state, but I would encourage you, if, if you're stuck, don't think twice. We'll handle things on the other end. You know, your intensivists can make adjustments down the road, and, and maybe they'll have to stay paralyzed. But at the moment, it's not wrong to paralyze. 100% agree with what you just said. For the community doctors and the residents, to give you a little background history, when I started 17 years ago, 18 years ago, we used to paralyze everybody. Everybody was paralyzed, paralyzed. You know, we did RSI, then we put them in a paralytic drip. And then there was a syndrome described that patient would paralyze who might or might not have received steroid, had decreased muscle tone, and it took longer for them to be uh, extubated. Well, again, in the ARDS part two of the net trial, they looked at patients that were paralyzed in the first 48 hours. And actually, they found no change in morbidity and no change, or I should say, longer time on the vent. So it is safe, paralyze somebody for the first 48 hours. And like Dr. Phillips mentioned, not only it's safe, but you're taking full control of the patient, especially if you know, you're doing this asthmatic patient, breathing 30 breaths a minute, the risk of him auto stacking or auto peeping is increasingly elevated. So by paralyzing him, you're controlling that patient. So I totally agree with you. So let me just run through then. We've done three Ps. It's checking for auto peak, plateau pressure, and then you can paralyze and sedate your patient. Those are the three Ps and the push 100%. So then we move to ultrasound or chest x-ray, your choice du jour, but the U works for the mnemonic best. You want to be looking most notably for a pneumo. You can do that with lung sliding. You can get an upright chest x-ray certainly want to make sure that the tube is in the right position, so an x-ray needs to come at some point, make sure you're not main stemming. But that's another part of your quick work through of why are things going poorly after things should have gotten better when I intubated. 
the patient. That, of course, is a whole other talk in of itself with critical care ultrasound, but for the purposes of us, you're focusing on the tube location and for pneumothorax. We'll talk about, you know, they can be decompensating hemodynamically as well as you could do things like the rush exam with the ultrasound, but that also is another topic. Whatever you'd be doing for a low blood pressure patient with your ultrasound, consider that as well. Even though you've intubated them, certainly the patient still has to circulate their blood and they have the same organ set up before with the heart and all that, so that could have gone poorly also. So we have the auto-peep, the plateau pressure, paralyze, and then do your ultrasound workup and your chest X-ray to look for the tube position. So just to reemphasize that point, for the community doctors, and you know, if you do not have the ultrasound, the importance of ordering an X-ray, checking the tube placement. We want the tube to be at least two centimeter above the crina. Make sure the tube is at least past the vocal cord. Make sure we don't have a right mainstay intubation. So ordering the chest X-ray post intubation, but most importantly, checking the X-ray in a due diligent time, meaning you know as soon as possible. So now let's move on to the S. And the S is for suction. You can suction the ET tube. Sometimes patients will develop a plug, whether it be a plug of mucus or a plug of blood, just really thick secretions. And it's remarkable these things can get so large that they can block off an entire lobe. And it's such a fast, easy fix to take the inline suction catheter. So this is not the standard yank hour, right, that we have sitting around all the beds. RT should have with them an inline suction catheter. It's probably about two millimeters total width, and it runs through the ET tubing, and they have a plastic cover to go over this so that you can uh, you know, protect and keep it clean, but it just goes straight down the ET tube, and you apply your, your regular medium suction to this, and you push it all the way down the tube without any suction applied, and then as you're drawing the suction catheter back out of the tube, you apply your suction, and you move relatively slowly, maybe a couple centimeters every second or, or so, but give things a chance to kind of get into that suction. And if that is your problem, it's amazing how quickly it'll resolve when you get that plug out. You can go from a completely decompensating respiratory-wise patient who's been tubed, you cannot figure out why it's not working, you pull the plug and all of a sudden the fats go up. So that's an important one to keep in your back pocket, and the mnemonic as well. And the next one would be an H, and actually I'll go back just to, so we can keep reiterating the mnemonic. So push 100%, it's PEEP, auto-peeping, your plateau pressure, paralyze, it's a three Ps, the U is ultrasound and chest X-ray, the S was suction, and we just talked about, suction ET tube, and the H is head of bed greater than 30 degrees. Or if you can't bend them because of some sort of their inaugural precautions or they have some sort of belly pathology, a descent abdomen, for whatever reason, if you can't bend the head of the bed at 30 degrees, put a reverse T-bird. And this is important because it's putting the body back into as close to upright physiology as we can get. We were designed to be upright, not lay supine. And sparing the details of the size and compliance in the alveola in the upper versus lower part of the lung and the various blood vessel distribution that perfusion's better in the bottom and bearing all of that suffice to say it's better if we're upright. You get better VQ matching, your ventilation and perfusion matching when you're sitting the body up. And so thirty degrees is your magic number. If you need to, you know, if you put them in reverse T Berg, then yes, they're gonna start kind of sliding down the bed. This is at least a start again to get you out of a hole. 
So you're not going to go wrong. There's no pathology for which putting the head to the bed or reverse T-Berg, right, just a bending caveat. There's no pathology for which raising the head up above the 30 degrees is going to bite you. It can only be helpful. And so I would recommend that if you're having problems with your oxygenation, they're decompensating. Bear in mind, if you do that, that is going to change your, your blood pressure. So when we're talking about decompensating, there's both the respiratory and hemodynamic decompensation. I definitely want to reemphasize that point, especially for the community doctors or residents. Head of the bed up not only increases the physiological of the perfusion, what you heard Dr. Phillips discuss about the VQ mismatch, the perfusion, but it also decreased aspiration, decreased vent days. So it's very, very important. The only true contraindication to putting somebody at 30 degrees or 35 degrees ahead of the bed up is if somebody has a spinal injury where you can place the patient in a reverse Trendelenburg. And again, reverse Trendelenburg is, you know, the bed is flat, but the head is up and the feet is inclined. But turn the FiO2 up to 100%. Any of those vents, I mean, you should know, hopefully know your vents well enough to be able to turn that up or RP can help you. The nurses, and sometimes if you're really in a pinch and you're having a hard time figuring out the machine, most ventilators will have a button for suctioning where it just automatically goes to 100% for a few minutes. You can look for that button. There are multiple ways to get the machine up to 100% to at least buy you some time. And so that would be the last part of the mnemonic. Before we go into uh, some of the uh, physiological, I'd like to discuss a little bit about the 100%. So I know the resident out there who are listening, and they're going to say, well, you know, oxygen is toxic. This is a very important point that you have to understand. We're taking a patient that needs to be intubated. We're not talking about the patient that you're doing intubation for airway protection because they can't maintain their airway. We're talking about somebody who's sick who needs to be intubated for oxygenation go ahead and always start at 100 percent you're buying yourself some room you're replenishing the oxygen 100 percent has never been shown to be damageful to anybody in the first 10 to 30 minutes all the papers are coming out on hyperoxygenemia is with patient who's been on oxygen for two three four five six hours so yes start at 100 percent as soon as the patient is intubated, there seems to be a urban legend that you have to wait 60 minutes for the patient to obtain an ABG. My personal thoughts is once the patient is intubated, once we've done hang or drips, we've kind of stabilized the patient, then obtain an ABG right away and titrate your FiO2 to maintain a PO2 greater than 65, or if you're using the O2 saturation to maintain O2 saturation above 92%. I would totally agree, yes. So summarizing the mnemonic then, we have PUSH 100%, that was three Ps, and it was auto PEEP, plateau pressure, paralyzed and sedate, ultrasound and chest X-ray, suction, head of bed 30 degrees, and 100% is FiO2 of 100%. And these apply to both hemodynamic and respiratory decompensation. Bearing that in mind, there are, of course, different differentials for each of those two broad categories, but you can't go wrong. Get yourself out of a hole, buy yourself some time, give these things a shot. So, Dr. Phillips, go ahead and take us through the natural physiological changes that occur with placing someone on a vent. So, when you intubate somebody, inherently, you're changing three main components of their 
respiratory mechanics. You are increasing their airway resistance because you're shoving it a small tube down there now, right? And then you're decreasing the compliance because the lungs aren't opening normally anymore. They're being forced open on the inside instead of just drawn naturally open from the outside. And then your ventilation and perfusion mismatch occurs because of that flow and distribution of the air. And the whole concept, the reason I want to go through this at this point is because when someone decompensates after we intubate them, it's because we mentioned at the very beginning, their underlying pathology is going to be exacerbated by something we did in terms of intubating them. So with the airway resistance, let's take an asthmatic, for example, they already have extraordinarily high airway resistance. And now because they're decompensating, they're tiring out, whatever end game you've gotten to here, um, we're now adding to that airway resistance. Certainly if their work of breathing is too high and you have to intubate them, you intubate them. But this is an explanation for why we have more problems, why that alarm is going to go off and be buzzing all the time for high airway resistance because they already had high airway resistance and now we put that tiny tube in and it's going to be higher. So the lung compliance, they're already having problems getting their lungs to open and close because they are breast stacking. But now we have a ventilator with, a, again, a small hole trying to get that air back out. And so they're going to air trap more once you intubate them. And if you're trying to imagine over distended lung or if you work out your extended, right, if you're trying to do a, a curl and your arm is way overextended, trying to get your arm back up into that curl position, the same idea as alveoli. They're over distended, and now we're adding positive pressure and we're making the lung compliance even worse. And then with the VQ mismatch, the flow of the air is already distorted in a severe asthmatic. And now we have a tube that is not necessarily delivering the same laminar flow that they're normally getting uh, in a patient who would you know, even not have asthma. So for all those reasons, of course, if you need to tube them, you tube them. But this is why they're going to decompensate from a respiratory standpoint after you put that tube in, because there are all these mechanics from the intubation process, the tube itself, that are exacerbating their underlying physiology. That's a great review for the asthmatic. Again, you know, for the community doctors and the resident, make sure your patient is sedated. Make sure we're paying attention to the respiratory rate to give that inspiratory flow versus our expiration. We want to make sure that the air is able to get out of the lung and remember and keep in mind all those physiological changes that Dr. Phillips just discussed. So with that classic example and getting an idea now of, of how we're changing the airway resistance and the lung compliance when we intubate somebody, we can actually divide a differential from what alarms are going off on the ventilator. So we talked, for example, at the asthmatic, the, the high peak pressure alarm is going to go off. And we talked earlier in the podcast about measuring the plateau, and here's where that number comes in handy. If someone has a high peak pressure, then you get a high peak pressure alarm if they have increased air resistance and if they have decreased lung compliance. The way you differentiate what that causes is to check the plateau pressure. So a high peak pressure alarm with a normal plateau that's less than 30 is a problem with airway resistance. And your differential for that is some kind of circuit blockage or a kink. They have a mucus plug or a clot, or they're having bronchospasm. Those are the things to think of if you have a high peak pressure 
at a normal plateau, there's a resistance problem. You want to run that circuit, make sure that one of the machines, the wheels, hasn't rolled over the tubing or the basement's not biting down the tube. Those are quick fixes you can do for someone for whom the ventilator is going off a high peak pressure but a normal plateau less than 30. Conversely, if your ventilator is going off with a high peak pressure and a high plateau, now you're talking about an emphasis on decreased lung compliance. So think of a main stem intubation, a tension pneumothorax, intrinsic lung pathology like ILD, for example, or breath stacking is a classic example of this as well. Anything that's preventing the lungs from opening up, you can have abdominal distension that's preventing those lungs from opening up. And that's going to be a high plateau and a high peak because something is pushing up against those alveoli, preventing them from opening up broadly. And that's decreasing your compliance. I know it's a mouthful, but you can really separate your differential well by checking peak pressure and checking your plateau pressure. I'd like to simplify. So the PIP, the positive inspiratory pressure, it's the pressure that leaves the ventilator all the way to the tube, basically meaning that's the pressure that the breath is getting all the way to the tube. So the lungs doesn't see that pressure. Okay, This is the pressure before. The plateau pressure is a surrogate that we're using for the alveoli pressure, right? So that's going to tell us the lung units. So your explanation, we can simplify, you know, a high peak pressure with a normal plateau pressure. Your problem is somewhere between the end of the, of the ET tube to the machine. Check to make sure that, you know, patient's not biting. There's not a mucus plug. Check your circuits. If problem is in the lung itself, the pneumothorax, the ARDS, it's going to have a high PIP with a high plateau pressure. Absolutely. I like that explanation a lot. Yes, most definitely. So with all this in mind, let's run through some classic sort of cases. We talked about the asthmatic for a little bit. So I think it's worth just pointing out that this also is a podcast in of itself a lecture for you know, how to handle the asthmatic post-intubation. But the key points of the asthmatic, you're going to end up with a high peak pressure. You're going to end up with a high plateau pressure. They're going When you run through your mnemonic, so we're going to check for auto-peeping, and they're going to be auto-peeping because they're breath stacking. Uh, if event settings are, are right, they'll have an increased plateau pressure. Of course, if they're decompensating, give it a shot. Go ahead and paralyze them and sedate them. Check for a pneumothorax for sure with your ultrasound or your chest X-ray. Suction ET tube because the asthmatics can come with mucus plugs. Get the head of the bed above 30 degrees or go into reverse turn Delberg if they have some other pathology with it. And, of course, turning the FiO2 up to 100%. And the way to avoid or try to minimize the risk of having a decompensating asthmatic patient when you've intubated them is to be very vigilant checking that plateau pressure and the auto-peep. If they're starting to auto-peep a little bit, and remember we said we want to keep that auto-peep less than three, then you need to slow down the rate. You can use permissive hypercapnia on them. Try to keep the pH above 7.2 if possible. That PaCO2 doesn't matter. So long as your pH is in a range where your pressures and everything will still function, which is around 7.15, 7.2, they may chronically be retaining CO2, and that's more speaking to the COPD patients, but the number to focus on is not the CO2, it's the pH on these patients. 
You want to keep them to a low tidal volume and a low respiratory rate so that they have more time to blow off this air than to be taking it in. Again, reinforce this point. You know, minute ventilation is the respiratory rate times the tidal volume. So if your plateau pressure is elevated or if you're suspecting your patient is auto-peeping, you're going to decrease your minute ventilation by altering your respiratory rate or your tidal volume. That decrease in your respiratory rate is going to cause hypercapnia, increase in your PCO2. You know, as Dr. Phillips mentioned, permissive hypercapnia is extremely well tolerated all the way till the pH is 7.15, 7.18, depending who you're reading. So that's, that's okay. We're protecting the lungs. We're making sure that the patient is not auto-peeping and we're checking our ABGs. I totally agree. So now we've talked about the asthmatic. Another classic sort of case would be, for example, a patient who has ARDS. And we'll see this in the emergency department. It is a pretty common problem up in the unit, but it can definitely present to the ED, for example, with the necrotizing pancreatitis. The patient finally makes their way in after the pain is just you know, to the point they can't stand it. They've already gotten to the point that they now can't breathe because they have uh, acute lung injury. And so when you start working through Again, the, the mnemonic, when you have a patient who's having a difficulty breathing and you've intubated them, for example, with ARDS patient, you're checking again the auto-peep, the plateau pressure. That plateau pressure is probably going to be high if they're having big problems with ARDS. You've got to keep it under 30, and you do that with changing the peep that you're setting them at and by changing the tidal volumes. But focusing on plateau pressure so you're not causing any barotrauma paralyze them. If they're fighting the vent at all, then they're going to be increasing those pressures. If you're paralyzing, of course, you're sedating. Check again for pneumothorax and the tube position on your ultrasound and your chest x-ray. Suction an ET tube. Sometimes the secretions in your ARDS patients can get pretty thick. Not quite like the asthmatic that we saw or we spoke about um, just a moment ago, but keep running through that mnemonic at your head of bed above 30 degrees. You really have to get your VQ matching as good as possible is ARDS patients, you have to get that head of the bed up in a, a way that you can oxygenate the best layer of alveoli, and that's going to be getting them into a semi-upright position with that 30 degrees, and then the 100% FiO2. The things you're going to see on the vent, since we talked about the, you know, the lung compliance and resistance, this is a patient that has, as Dr. Farsi mentioned, a problem at the lung level. This isn't a problem with the tube itself or the patient biting. This isn't a resistance problem. So this patient, an ARDS patient, is going to have a high peak pressure and a high plateau pressure. So you know that it's something down in the lungs themselves. But you mentioned the PEEP. And so I'm sure you're referring to titrating your PEEP to maintain your PAO2 above 65, correct? Right, 65, 55, that range depending on what you're reading. So just to give some background, I know some of the uh, community doctors out there and some of the residents, there's some urban legend that says, you know, normal PEEP is anywhere between zero to five. And if the patient is hypotensive, we should start at zero PEEP. Try to clarify that urban legend. I personally, Dr. Farsi, teach that any patient that is placed on a mechanical ventilation should always have a minimum of five of PEEP. If you don't give a minimum of five of PEEP, you're inflating the lung, and then you're deflating the lung back to zero. And every time the lung gets reinflated, it's just get reinflated. So you're not promoting any recruitment. So those lung units inflate, deflate, and you're not promoting recruitment of those claps alveoli. 
Not only this, but in the ARDS natural to continue, they've used by increasing PEEP to maintain PO2 greater than 55 to 65, as high as PEEP of 18 to 20. So understand that we're using PEEP to increase the oxygen, the recruitment to change our VQ mismatch. Understanding the physiological changes, once you increase your PEEP, you will decrease your preload. Decreased preload will cause hypotension. So you must respond by treating the patient either by volume or by using a vasopressor. The last very common patient that I wanted to bring up that we're seeing more and more downstairs is the obese patient. I'm sure a shift hasn't gone by that one of us hasn't had to work around some of the difficulties that severe obesity can contribute to trying to care for someone. And in the context of the ventilator, that increased size, you have to remember it's on the outside. No matter what their BMI is, 45, 50, 60, 65, however large of a BMI it is, they still have the same sized lungs. Those lungs don't get any bigger with the obesity. This is all on the outside. So that brings up two issues for the intubated patient. One, you have to use the ideal body weight when you are coming up with the tidal volumes of these patients. And Dr. Farsi, you mentioned the four to six cc's uh, per kg when coming up with the tidal volume for them. And you're going to base that off of the ideal body weight, which is based off their height. So even if they have a very high BMI, you're still going to be working off of the four to six cc's per kg of their ideal weight. It's going to be fairly similar to someone who would you know, be, actually would be exactly the same as someone the same height but much skinnier. The other component is that all this weight is on the outside. So if you start really getting these BMIs, then you could be talking 75 or 100 pounds of extra weight on someone's chest, and it's going to be changing their compliance because you're, you're trying to shove the air right from the inside, from the bronchi up into those alveoli that are being crushed with downward pressure. So sometimes you can get a fair amount of atelectasis from these folks, and you may have to increase your PEEP a little bit. Remember, we talked to PEEP about being the, the positive excretory pressure, the same concept as like a CPAP if you're you know, doing a, a non-invasive sort of thing. But your PEEP, and you know, we talked about kind of a standard starting at 5, may need to go up to 8 or, or even 10. If you have a low saturation on someone who is obese, give that a thought. You may need to go up on your PEEP in order to physiologically keep those alveoli stented open because they, in a baseline, have a little higher pressure inside their lungs to compensate for all that weight on the outside. So the take-home is use the ideal body weight for the 4 to 6 cc's per kg on the tidal volume and then consider a little bit higher PEEP. It's usually still pretty safe depending on what other pathology is going on. But give that a shot if you're having a problem with your oxygenation and you have an obese patient. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Dr. Farson. No, I think that's a very, very great point that you're making. You know, the PEEP, you have to keep the PEEP. You know, the, that those alveoli getting the chest pressure is going to try to force to collapse. Again, you know, we need to promote recruitment of those alveoli that are closed but to change the VQ mismatch. That's a great point. So before we finish, I just want to go over one last case. We talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but we, we haven't got to it yet. And one of the case is the classic, you know, the DKA patient, you know, the patient that comes in, they're a little bit confused, their blood sugar is 200, 
and at the rate of 25, maybe 36 breaths a minute. Intubate them, we paralyze them, and then next thing you know, we walk away. Nurse calls you at bedside and they say, hey, patient is crashing. You know, this is one of the points I tell my residents, you've just taken compensatory mechanism of the patient. The patient has a metabolic acidosis and his only way he's protecting himself is by a respiratory alkalosis. And now we're putting the patient on the vent, we haven't taken this in consideration, and suddenly you know, the patient pH drops because he's unable to maintain the respiratory alkalosis. Comment a little bit about that. Well, certainly, it's a very good point that this is not something directly related to what we have done in terms of adding a tube to them, but in terms of their ability to continue to pull that minute ventilation. And I was so glad to hear that when you brought up and emphasized with everybody that think in terms of your minute ventilation, don't think in terms of just respiratory rate or tidal volume. It's hard to estimate what kind of tidal volume someone's taking in when they are not intubated. But suffice to say, a DKA or their minute ventilation is going to be quite high. And so you need to achieve that similar minute ventilation. The normal minute ventilation is somewhere between four to six liters per minute, which is probably what we're doing right now, just sitting here chatting. But a patient like that could be pulling 14, 16, 18 liters a, a minute. And so to achieve that, it's worth staying at the bedside after you intubate them. Take a look at what the respiratory rate was beforehand. We try to keep the ventilator respiratory rates under 35, really, is most folks who I talk to, their limit that the most, you know, we, we tend to kind of shy just a little below that, so maybe 34, 32. So even if they were breathing at, say, 40 a minute, maybe set that at 30, 32 and then adjust with your tidal volume to achieve a good minute ventilation and getting an early gas on them after that intubation is going to be critical. And to your point of not waiting a long time, on these CKAs, I get a gas within five or six minutes. I realize that that's not a fully settled gas, but I want to be able to make changes in real time. This is that patient who you're sitting at bedside with them for the first 20, 30 minutes, and I fully recognize you have a lot of other patients in the ED to be going through as well, but these patients it's awfully hard to turn around once you've hit a low pH on the DK airs. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and I think focusing on ventilation is a big deal. We shouldn't make every patient fit the settings that we want. We have to put the settings accordingly to the patient. So not every patient is respiratory of 12, tidal volume of 500, PIPA 5, FiO2 of 100. Type DKA patient, you may start a respiratory rate of 20 because you know they have that respiratory alkalosis. So you want to induce that respiratory alkalosis until we fix their underlying medical condition. So, Dr. Phillips, I would like to use a mnemonic that kind of sums up the physiological changes of the intubation as we come to our closing. And that mnemonic, HOP mnemonic. H for hypotension, O for oxygenation, and P for pH. So, and this mnemonic was coined, I'm going to say by Dr. Scott Weingarten. Not sure if Scott is the actual one that coined it, but Scott speaks a lot about the hop killer. And basically, you know, it addressing, you know, making sure we consider the potential hypotension. Remember, they're losing the adrenergic receptors and they may become severely hypotensive. So, anticipating fluid oppressors. Making sure you know, we're looking, we're going to anticipate, and we're going to reverse any problem. And in the pH, as we just discussed with the DKA, that because the patient 
as a compensatory mechanism, we've taken away that and then we should anticipate. On this note, we've touched pretty much on all the points for post-intubation decompensation. Dr. Phillips, do you have any departing word, anything you want to add before we finish? I would just say this is a a lot. We we covered probably differential is, is quite extensive. So if you find yourself in a hole, go to the hop mnemonic and go to the push 100% mnemonic, and that should buy you some time to be able to work through this. And I'll just one last time go through that the push 100% was your auto-peep, your plateau pressure, paralyze and sedate them, ultrasound or chest x-ray looks at two position, the pneumo, suction ET tube, head of the bed to 30 degrees, and 100% FiO2 these patients can get really complex really fast and that should buy you some time and be a surefire way of getting you an opportunity to kind of get yourself out of a bind. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'd like to remind all the listener, December 6, 210, we will be hosting the Mediterranean Emergency Medicine Conference in Lisbon, Portugal. We have an amazing lineup of speaker and I will be recording actually a live podcast in Lisbon, so if you haven't done so, go ahead and go to AAM and register for the conference, and I hope to see a lot of you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out AAEM Connect, where you can engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Find all episodes of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine and other podcast series on the AAEM website underneath the Publications tab. Join us again next episode as Dr. Farsi will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians.